The womb has been scapegoated, demonised and weaponised against women historically and still today. So it's not really a surprise that we might have a complicated relationship with our own bodies. The solution? Learning the truth about our bodies. Understanding what has shaped the stories we were told and taking control of that narrative. I'm Dr. Suba, and we really need to talk. This is In Hysterics, the podcast where we talk about women's health issues and the history, politics, and culture around them. We are Powered by Day, a women's health company bridging the gender gap in medical research and innovation. The first friend I made in nursery, aged three, was by pushing out my belly and yelling, I'm pregnant. I then spent the next 10 minutes bumping bellies with my new best pal before we got bored and found something else silly to do. The idea of having babies is fed into us pretty much as soon as we can walk and talk. From our childhood toys, to the not so subtle cultural expectations, to our own personal presumptions about how our lives will unfold. Childbearing is so culturally intertwined with womanhood. So what about when you can't get pregnant? There's nothing like wanting something so, so much and it's seeming impossible. But infertility goes beyond just desperately wanting a child. It's also navigating the social pressure to have children, circumventing the well-meaning questions from family and friends, the perceived shame of not being able to conceive coping with pregnancy losses, and anxiety once pregnant. Today, I'm joined by Andrea Trigo. She's a fertility nurse consultant, author, and TEDx speaker. Born with a unique medical condition where her womb and the upper part of her vagina didn't develop, she has a truly personal understanding of what womanhood means when you can't get pregnant. She has been galvanised by her own experience of infertility to help people undergoing similar challenges achieve their reproductive goals. Her incredible mission is to improve accessibility to fertility care and support worldwide at minimal costs. Andrea shares her personal story with us. We discuss the challenges of infertility and we explore how womanhood goes beyond the womb. Hi guys, welcome to another episode. I've got Andrea with me. Andrea, let you say hello. Hello, thank you so much for having me here today. No, thank you so much for joining us. I think this is going to be such a great episode. I'm really, really excited for it. So Andrea, I think it would be amazing if we start with hearing your personal story. I first came across you on TEDx, but yeah, I think it would be amazing to hear your story. So I'll let you take it away. Yes, so my story started when I was a teenager. So I was waiting for my periods to start just like, you know, normal teenage girls do. But by the age of 17, I hadn't started my periods, even though I had developed physically normally as it would have been expected. So after having done some tests, the doctors told me that I had been born without a uterus and without the top part of my vagina. This is a condition called MRKH that happens in about one in 5,000 women. So even though I was producing hormones and I have ovaries, Mm. my uterus wasn't there. And to me, that came as a big shock. So at the time, I I wasn't 
trying to get pregnant. I think most girls at 17 are either starting their sexual relations or avoiding a pregnancy and not trying to conceive. So I wasn't trying to conceive at the time, but I do come from a very big family. And I think it sort of was in the back of my mind that eventually it would happen. Mm. And I would, I, I don't know, go to university, get a job, get a house, get a husband, get children, you know, the normal things mm -hmm. that I think society says it's normal mm. to do with life. So for me, when I, when the doctor told me you don't have a uterus, my first reaction was then I can't have children. Mm. And the doctor kept repeating the same thing. Yes, you don't have a uterus. Uh, so for me, it was like, there's that moment before and the moment after when your life changes forever. And for me, it was that moment. Over the next few months, I was searching for an answer in terms of my physical disability of not having the top part of my vagina, because I wanted to resolve what could be resolved first, you know, take control of the situation best I could. So I had surgery at the time. It was very complex and when I look back realize how could I have coped with this I was in my first year as a nursing student and I had to wear these vaginal prostheses which is like a dildo oh, wow. inside me 24 7 mm. for a few months so you can imagine I was going to university I was going to my placements in the hospitals and when I look back, how did I do this? No one does that. No one I know going through university is wearing a dildo 24 seven. And this is what I've been through. But I think when we are faced with these unprecedented situations, there is unprecedented strength that comes from within and we just mm. do what needs to be done. Mm. So after I dealt with that, it took maybe almost a year of recovery that's when the infertility side of things started affecting me because that's the part that I couldn't resolve. Mm. That had no solution whatsoever. I would never be able to carry my own children. And being faced with certain triggers was really, really hard. Either other children or pregnant women mm. or even being in hospital placements where I was oh. in the maternity ward. Of course. Or all those things. It was always in the back of my mind. So I think it took me maybe 15 years to, to say I'm okay emotionally. Mm. And even today, even though I am okay and I live a very happy and fulfilling life, I've learned that there's triggers that are going to come throughout life yeah. that when we least expect. So as my friends now are getting pregnant or, for example, my cousins are having babies and I can't give the same to my grandma or to my parents. So there's all sorts of new triggers that I think we need to learn how to cope with throughout life. It's really, really hard. Yeah. And I think it's really inspiring that you took this incredibly personal experience and have 
taken it to a professional level and you know I would like us to speak a bit more about what you do professionally at the sort of end of our episode so we can leave our listeners with an understanding of the work you do so stay tuned guys yeah that's a good reason (laughs) to keep you guys till the end because it's really amazing what Andrea does at the moment professionally I think something that I would like to ask you about is you know you're going through this horrible time at university that's incredibly personal and did you tell any of your friends at uni about what was going on or was that something you spoke about yeah so at the time I was in my first year and I was very interested in surgery at the time and I always thought that I wanted to be a nurse working in an operating room so at the time I was curious about the surgery that was going to be done on me to reconstruct my vagina so in the hospital the doctor said that there was a journalist that was looking for cases to record and people to interview to raise awareness of rare situations that can happen. So I ended up being interviewed for that TV piece. And just so because I wanted the recording of the surgery, I was so curious about what was being done to my body. Mm. So at the time, the shaded my face so no one could ideally see who I was because I was so ashamed of it but at the same time I knew that I wasn't the only one in the world that couldn't Mm -hmm. be I knew that if I was going through it other people were going through it so I wanted to reach out and maybe meet other people and this was at a time when there was no Facebook Mm -hmm. no Instagram none of those things so the piece ended up going on the eight o'clock news Mm. and it was very shocking to me because the title they chose out of all the things that were really hard to cope with this syndrome one of the most difficult things i think is infertility but they they chose the title of the woman born without a vagina so for me i was very shocked with the title a bit taken aback by it and even though my face was shaded everyone still recognized me. Oh. So it was, uh, I was afraid of what people might say, what people might think. But the truth is that it left me with having nowhere to hide. Mm. So what I've realized from that is that no one ever said anything negative. People have been very supportive from that moment on. I stopped having questions, you know, in the future when are you going to have children, which is one of the most triggering questions. I stopped having that question because people know. Mm. And above all, my doctor had so many other girls from all over the country coming to him as a result of that, Mm. which allowed us to create a support group, which in those times was, you know, face to face. Mm. We had our newsletter, which was still in paper writing and printing. So I was very open about it accidentally open but everything happened I I realized that there is power in sharing power for me and power for others what a throwback to have an in-person support group can you even imagine that wow this pandemic has been long you guys but at the start of the pandemic one of my fave beauty gurus opened up about her infertility story Desi Perkins anybody In a series of YouTube vlogs, she opens up about her pregnancy losses and takes us with her on her IVF journey. And baby Perkins is due 
any time now. Her sharing her story shone a light on infertility. And for those going through a similar thing, like how empowering. And for those that aren't, how eye-opening to see even a sliver of what that's like. And Desi is just one of many that are sharing their infertility journeys and doing away with the crusty AF silence around fertility issues. And I am so here for it. Praise be. I think another thing we have to speak about here is this idea of fertility as like intrinsically linked to womanhood. It starts from when we're kids because what, we literally grow up playing with baby dolls and yeah. and you know, like you said at 17 when this doctor said to you, you don't have a womb. Your idea is, I can't have children. And it's something mm-hmm. that even if at 17, even no plans to have children right then and there, it's not something yeah. you're thinking about really. Most 17 year olds aren't thinking about that. But um, we just assume like throughout throughout your childhood, throughout your teenage years, your early adulthood, you just presume that at some point you would do these things. Like you said, you would go to uni, get a job, um, get married, get a house and then have children. It's literally we sing it in our childhood songs, right? It's like, you know, the teasing games of like so and so sitting in the tree, kissing, having a happy family, like there's all this it's ingrained in us so when we're when we're faced with this possibility that that might not happen or that might not be in the cards for you or that's definitely not in the cards you know like there's these yeah this this idea completely is turned on its head so I think it would be great to hear from you about how you know how you process something like that and and we can just talk a bit more on that societal idea yeah I, I think there is a societal expectations for what we should do and I think if we're not faced with a situation of infertility we we almost don't realize the expectations of society we just assume it's normal and we assume it's what I want to do I think when I was faced with it, it it was very difficult to disconnect myself from what society wants versus what I want and realize that those are not necessarily the same thing. Mm. So it, it helped me a lot at the time to read about positive psychology books, mm. understand that every situation is neutral and we're all wearing these lenses that make us see the situation in, the, in a different way. So I realized that the way I was feeling about my loss was because I was grew up in a culture and in a society where having children easily and naturally, that's what's portrayed. Mm-hmm. That was my experience of my family. But the values and the beliefs that I have around that situation are not being helpful to me at the moment because for me, getting pregnant is not going to be possible. Mm-hmm. And to so many people out there, it might be possible, but it might not be easy. So it's understanding that the beliefs that I had were not necessarily useful to me, even though they came from people whom I absolutely loved and trusted, who were my parents and my family. So at the time, a series of things happened in life when I felt that a lot of those things that society leads us to believe that we want didn't happen. It was like a sequence of events in my life that led me to a breaking point when I said, well, I'm going to stop doing things because I think that's what I should do Mm. or what other people want me to do. And I'm going to take back control. I'm going to 
take this opportunity to choose what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do the things that bring me happiness. And if I do go to university, if I do marry, if I do get a house, if I do end up having children in some other way, it's because I want those things for me and not because it's what everyone's doing or because what's expected of me. Mm. That was a decision I made at the time. But you are right that it does challenge your womanhood. And in the beginning, that's what I felt that I was, am I a woman? Should I, what is my role in a relationship or in family? What should I maybe be a nun? What does this mean in terms of my religion as well? Because I was raised Catholic. What does the nun and the priest whom I was seeing as a girl, a young girl every Saturday, what do they think of this? What does that mean in terms of sex? Mm. So all those questions that society had put in my mind uh, were being questioned at the time. And I realized I had to take back control. I had to be my own person Mm. more than uh, allowing those societal beliefs to define me. And it's such a reductive idea of womanhood, right? Mm. Like womanhood is not being a vessel. It isn't like just bearing child. It says a lot about how our society maybe sees women. And Mm. like you said, the hardest bit about it is that it comes from our loved ones and our nearest and dearest who don't at all mean it in a damaging sense. It's just, it's just the way that we are all influenced. And even beyond on a personal level thinking, okay, this is something I wanted for me. You said something interesting earlier where you said, you know, I would want to give that to my grandmother, like to be able mm-hmm. to give her a grandchild yeah. or for my pet, you know, for, well, it would be a great grandchild, but you know, yeah, <laughs> for your family. And yes. I think this is a really important thing because actually a lot of even bearing child, if you can accept for yourself, it might not be in the cards for you. And okay, you're maybe okay with it there comes this other layer of like, but am I disappointing my partner? Am I disappointing my parents, my family? And there's this attitude, well, there's this sort of, you know, doubt or belief that that it goes beyond yourself. 100%. And how did you find that? How did you find that when you were talking with your family? Well, with my parents, I've for them there was in the beginning a bit of self-blame because they felt maybe there was something that they had done during their pregnancy that could have caused it and it was not but Mm. there was a bit of dismystifying and taking the blame away this is just something that happens Mm. um they've been incredibly supportive but at the time i was mindful that it was not only my loss it was their loss as well Mm. of not having grandchildren so I always encourage them to have their own support network. I didn't mind if they needed to talk to their friends about it Mm. because it was not just my, my grief. Now it's really hard as I grow older and I see them with my cousin's children, it's really, really hard. So I sort of need to have boundaries Mm. for myself, but it's something I'm learning to deal with. And in terms of relationships, I mean, it's really hard because when you realize at a young age you have this problem that when are you going to bring it up in a yeah. in a dating situation right yeah. it's not you don't want to, t- to say someone look i don't i can't have children you don't want to talk about children 
in the first or second day. Yeah, like, do you open with it? Dating's hard enough, like, yes. you know, without having to navigate this as well, right? Yeah, so it, it's just really hard because in the beginning, uh, I would either, I would always be open about my situation, but I can't expect someone to have their ideas already made up about children or how they want children, mm. how many, or if they're open to different in someone I don't know. And when you were young, I had had some time to think about it, but they hadn't. Mm. So there was a time when I dated men who didn't want children on purpose, just so I could didn't want to deal with it. At the moment, uh, I, I'm married. And I think we are in the best possible scenario where he doesn't want children for now. I don't want children for now in terms of getting them through other means but we're both at peace that with the fact that we might change our minds and if we do then we will pursue it mm -hmm. and i think that is the best mm -hmm. way to the best place to be yeah that's great i think we have to speak a little bit about the mental health effects of infertility as well yeah. because you know there's some stats out there that you know 90 percent of those going through mm -hmm. infertility I also have depression yeah so um i know you mentioned things already throughout our interview such as boundaries and um having support systems if you could give sort of your advice on managing the mental health effects of infertility i think that'd be really really valuable for our listeners yeah i i think mental health is definitely one of the outcomes of this journey, we may or may not end up with a baby, but the emotional distress will be there 100%. So we need to find out what works for us, what is good for our mental health. And for some people, it might be going to the gym or going for a walk or reading or speaking with other people. I think speaking with other people who are going through it can be very healing because people realize I'm not alone. There's other people who understand there is a place where I belong. Mm. And I, I think for me, what has worked was moving forward in other areas of my life because so many times people feel I'm not, everyone's life is moving ahead. They're having children and I'm not. So for me, focusing on my work and getting achievements elsewhere in life has been really helpful. So trying not to make infertility my whole life, which for a while it was, and I think it is the reality for a lot of people. It's 24 seven of their life. Mm. But I usually say it's about regaining who you were before you had this problem. Mm. And infertility is a part of it, but it's a small piece of the pie and not mm -hmm. the whole pie so I think that getting help from others getting professional help because sometimes if you're having suicidal thoughts if you're having depression if you're not being able to engage with other areas of your life you need to get professional help yeah I think you're so you're so so right um and I think a big thing I would take away from what you said there is to remember the wholeness of who you are mm -hmm. yeah. and to to lean into that so make sure that you are engaging all these other parts of yourself and 
getting support whether that's from friends or professionals and mm-hmm. not letting the shame and the silence strangle you because yeah. that's what it does so it's good to name it because that's what it is it is shame and it is silence and and once you've named the beast like you yeah. can address the beast right so Absolutely. yeah very important pause 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 i haven't even told you guys the definition of infertility so here's the quick need to knows infertility is when you can't get pregnant even though you're having regular unprotected sex. Regular being defined as every two to three days. Like, I'm tired just saying that. And a doctor usually diagnoses you after you've been trying for a year. One in seven couples can have difficulties. So it's like not a small number. The underlying cause can be male or female, and it's pretty evenly split. But let's hear more from Andrea about what the deal is with the fertility services in the UK. The NICE recommends three cycles per person, three IVF cycles that should be funded through the NHS. However, NHS services are, um, the funding comes from their CCGs. So there's different CCGs that might say, well, okay, we will fund you three cycles, but there's other CCG in a different postcode saying two cycles, some say one, some say zero. And unfortunately, over the years, it has been less and less funded. So it really is a postcode lottery, depending on where where you live, you might have access to some treatment or not access to any treatment at all. So it is very frustrating for patients, especially now that the World Health Organization has declared it a human's right issue, not having access to fertility treatment so it just seems that it's not a top priority in the political agenda. Mm. Uh, it wasn't even before corona, the coronavirus pandemic. So I think it's going to be less and less now, but it's very distressing because patients who don't have access, then they might not be able to pay privately. They may, and then they also have the emotional consequences of not having children, which ends up affecting themselves, their relationships with their partners, their work their relationships with friends Mm -hmm. so it's more than just having a baby yeah it's it's a woman's well-being and it's a huge shame that during times of crisis often women's needs do drop to the bottom of the pile Mm -hmm. of priorities and so now Mm -hmm. i share the same concerns as you for it's already you know pretty dire as it is the fact that how the pandemic will affect these women's health services. Um, yeah, I definitely have some concerns about that too. Um, for, so on the public sector, there are these restrictions of, of age, of you know um, BMI. There's all sorts yeah. of restrictions of who can access these services. And then like you pointed out, there's this disparity in what services are provided. So I've seen in my practice, a lot of women that do end up going overseas um, yeah. to seek you know, uh, these fertility treatments. Because in the private, I mean, I think it'd be interesting to know, Andrea, mm. you, you know more than me, yes. in the private sector, how much, what's the damage? What's the, how much is it going to set you back? Yeah, so here in the UK, I would say one cycle, maybe around 5,000. But then you have fertility medications. On top of that, you might have scans, consultations. And oh, so that's people... not like an all-inclusive 5k that's just the no, literal yeah. ivf cycles 
and you might need to have uh, extra treatment. If you have male factor infertility, you need to have you might need to have something called ICSI, mm. which adds on top of that. Or if you're if you need an egg donor, for example, it mm. adds on top of that. So it is very costly. There's a lot of people uh, having private treatment in the UK and our clinics are very well regulated, but it's very costly. So it's not accessible to mm. a lot of people. And yeah. that's, that's the reason why so many go abroad. Yeah. One of the reasons is the cost of treatment. And just to ask, I mean, say with the three cycle IVF, um, do you know what the success rates are? So it's around 20, 30% per cycle. Okay. Uh, we know that when you do the first cycle, we are learning a lot of things about your body. We're learning about how you are reacting mm. to the med stimulation medication. We're learning about your egg quality because the quality of the egg can only be seen when whether the egg is fertilized or not. Mm. So we can't see it really before we do an IVF. So there's a lot of things that we are learning. So the chances of having a baby, cumulative chances increase as you do more cycles. Yeah, that so, makes sense. And then there's the other uh, side of the problem where some people end up having five, seven, ten cycles, even I've met some women, and they still haven't gotten pregnant. So it's not the golden bullet, no. the answer to the problem. And can we talk about, for those that do go abroad, what are the possible, so obviously pros we've spoken about is, yeah, cheaper, right? That's the yeah. main draw for going abroad. And perhaps yeah. the lack of regulation for some may be appealing in the sense that there may be some women here that would be counselled against having certain fertility treatments that may be overseas, they may be more flexible. Yeah. Some countries are more relaxed in terms of fertility regulations, That mm. the biggest countries where people are going to are Spain and Greece, which are highly regulated. They have very good okay. regulations in terms of fertility treatment. So but there's That's also a concern as much then. I don't think there is a concern about having treatment in those countries. I think it's, mm. it's very safe. The cost is definitely one of the things that attracts people to going to these destinations. Mm. I think some people might want to break from work or break from family duties and just do treatment in a completely different scenario, mm. almost as if they were on holiday, so they can focus on their own treatment and uh, in their own bodies and don't have you know, to clean the house, do the dishes or whatever people are doing on their day to day. And then there's also regulations that are allowed in those countries that we are not allowed in the UK. So for example, egg donation here in, in the UK is not anonymous, which means that when the child is 18, they can request mm. who the donor was. So they have access to, to that information. It doesn't mean that the donor has any responsibility towards mm. the child, but it's not anonymous, right? Mm. For example, in Spain, it's not, uh, it's completely anonymous. So some people may want to go there for that reason. Yeah. But then it, it also triggers all sorts of ethical issues these days, because there's so many people doing DNA tests at home, like the 23andMe. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a 
I feel that we need to be open about it. Even if you want anonymous donation, it's good to be open to your child that she was born out of donation because if she does a test later in life and she starts comparing with other family members, she will realize that it's different. Yeah, and that can be a whole minefield to navigate for that child. Yeah. Um, what are the cons of going abroad or overseas to get private fertility treatments? I think at, at the moment, definitely the travel and the restrictions yeah. around the pandemic is a very specific time to be doing things like that, isn't it? Yes, it's really hard because you things are changing every day or even every week. So you don't need, if you need to quarantine on arrival or quarantine when you get back into the UK. So that I think is the biggest challenge for clinics and for patients having treatment abroad. Mm. Um, and I think if you go to certain countries that are not as well regulated, mm. then things can go really, really wrong. Um, and, and I think also I would add, depending on the clinics you attend, the level of follow up. I know some clinics mm. will have like a satellite clinic even in, yeah. say, the UK. So yeah, yeah. once you return, you can still go to that clinic if you have any concern or a checkup, um, whereas some don't have that. So you might have had just treatments done abroad and then you come here and you sort of don't have a point of contact. You're then re-engaging with the NHS services that don't know your backstory so you don't always get that sort of little holding hand that helps you up until the the sort of right time frame yeah absolutely i think people need to research really well which countries are safe to travel to um depending as well on the treatment that they need for example if we think about surrogacy which would be the solution for me it's really hard to do surrogacy in the uk Mm. it's allowed but it's difficult to, the whole process is not overly publicized and it's not clear how treatment can, can happen. Mm. Um, and when the child is born from a surrogate, mm. it's bor- the, the name on the birth certificate is the name of the surrogate. And it's like a, a donation, pro- an adoption, adoption process. process. Mm. So for example, if we compare it to Greece, fertility clinics already have a lawyer in the clinic who draws a contract and the name on the birth certificate will be the name of the intended parents, the ones who have donated the genetic material. So I think there's all sorts of different regulations and I understand it can be really hard for patients to first understand where to go, Mm. where is safe Mm. and where can they have access to the treatment that they need. Okay, I know what you're thinking. If only there was a resource that compiled all the regulations and recommendations from all these countries and clinics, I got you. And here are the deets. Over the the lockdown, there has been a huge platform called My IVF Answers. They've been doing webinars almost every day, sometimes twice a day. And it's a good resource because it has doctors and nurses, psychologists from different clinics all over the world, including the UK. But it's a good opportunity to listen to these doctors talk about their specialist areas and also connect directly with them. So I think that would be maybe a great starting point to a lot of people. Mm, That sounds fantastic. Um, I'll definitely put that in our show notes so that the listeners can, can access that. 
Let's talk about Day, the women's health company, raising the standards in gynae health and powering our pod. Hot water bottle, ibuprofen, exercise. We have all been there and we have all done that to try and find a way to manage those pesky period pains. My friend taught me a chanting trick in school. It was super out there, but it actually worked. Anyways, have you met the new kid on the block? CBD, aka cannabidiol. It comes from the hemp plant and many menstruators are using it to help with their cramps. But starting out can be really confusing. So if you want to check out how CBD could work for you, then they have got you covered. They have a CBD tampon and with each tampon, you know exactly what you're getting. It's 100 milligrams of medical grade, THC-free, hemp-derived CBD, with each batch being tested for cannabinoid content and purity. So no, it's not going to get you high. (laughs) These tampons hold the CBD in an extra layer. So that means it actually gets into your body rather than just being absorbed back into the tampon, which is what happens when you just put drops of oil on a tampon. Go to Dave's blog, check your vitals for more info on the topic and on the product. If you take regular medications, always, always, always check with your doctor in case of any interactions. But otherwise, visit their website, www.yourday.com, with day being spelled D-A-Y-E, to buy and to learn more. As a treat for your stunning selves, they are giving you £5 off your first box with the code SUBERSAYS. Right, next stop, egg freezing. Doesn't it sound amazing? Pop your eggs on ice whilst they're in tip-top condition and then when you're in the right place, right time with the right person, whatever it is, you can go ahead, defrost the old eggs and ta-da, you got yourself a baby. But is it actually that simple? Egg freezing is a process where women stimulate their eggs to produce several eggs in that cycle. So usually we would ovulate one egg, maybe two rare occasions on a monthly basis, but here we are taking medications to stimulate the production of several mature eggs at the same time. And then the doctor would collect those eggs and this would be frozen in a process called vitrification. Mm. And they can be used at a later stage to be fertilized with sperm when you're ready and transferred back into the into the uterus so it really gives women the option of delaying motherhood which is so important to so many women right now we want to study and we want to have a job we want financial security we want Mm -hmm. to find the right man for whatever reason it gives us that power to delay motherhood but I, i think what a lot of women are not aware of is the number of eggs you need to guarantee Mm. that you will get the baby. Mm. So in one cycle, you might stimulate your ovaries and they'll produce, I don't know, 10, 12 eggs, 15. It it really depends on women from woman to woman. Not all of those eggs will survive the defrosting. Mm. Then not all of them will, will be fertilized. Not all of them will be surviving to a day five embryo and not all of them will be surviving implantation in the uterus. So it's like a funnel. Yeah. So if you want to 100% rely on those frozen eggs, 
most women would need more than one stimulating cycle and more than one collection. So I think this is a very important information to put out there. I know a lot of women, if you have frozen their eggs in the past, were relying on them and they've used them and they haven't been able to get pregnant yet. That's a really, really important thing to highlight. And also the process of egg stimulation and collection is it's not unfortunately it's not a straightforward and simple process it's you've got to go through really intense in like the hormonal injections to stimulate the eggs and then also the retrieval process um you know it's invasive because you've got to get into the ovaries and the ovaries are inside your tummy so you've got to get in there to retrieve those yeah. eggs so and have to go through that a few times perhaps to get enough eggs is yeah, it's a big decision to make and it is often touted as this um, sort of utopian, fertility utopian thing for women mm -hmm. and it's it's not necessarily that way. Um, and again, I think when you say with the funneling, it's really interesting because it makes you look through fertility through this lens of it is a case of impossible, impossible chances, isn't it? It's these tiny, tiny chances, but we really do take it for granted that it's something oh it's straightforward you just get pregnant but um you know the right egg you know a healthy egg uh, so many really really tinyly close moments that happen throughout that whole process of implantation and you know early pregnancy and there's so many um things that have to line up and yeah most of the time they do but it is just a huge chance like a huge game of probability so it's yeah, interesting I, to think of it that way. I heard an embryologist say once that humans are really bad at reproducing. And I think he's right, because even on natural conception, the chances are even lower than with IVF. So if, if hmm. a man and a woman are having sex, the chances of getting pregnant are less than 20%. Again, because so many things need to be aligned to go right. And I think what we are led to believe when we have these sex ed uh, classes in school is that pregnancy is very easily and can happen anytime. And it's not like that at all. It's actually really difficult. And also it's because the only stories you hear are people saying, oh, yeah, I just tried and I got pregnant. You don't really hear people saying, well, I've been trying for so many months or so many, you know, this many, this long, and it's not happened. So mm. it does give this sort of narrative that it is easy. So that's really refreshing to hear from you that, you know, the statistic from the embryologist that 20% is natural mm. conception. And now it's time for the Q&As. If you want to send in your questions for future episodes, stay alert on my Instagram. So I think now it's time to ask some questions that have come in from our listeners. A question that definitely came up a few times was, how does diet and exercise affect fertility? And what should I be doing? What's the best thing that I could be doing? Absolutely. So in terms of diet, what I'm going to say, it's nothing, it's not a miracle fertility diet, but it's what works and i think we get so used to eating quickly what's convenient out of a packet on a go that we forget what we are putting into our bodies and what actually our bodies need to do what they need to be doing so what research shows is that we need to eat as healthily as possible what does this mean it means eating unprocessed foods as far as possible so unprocessed are foods that haven't been 
processed or have been minimally processed. So things that come in their natural form, mm. maybe things that our grandparents or great-grandparents would eat that mm. maybe we're not eating these days. Eating lots of vegetables, fruits, drinking plenty of water, saying no to trans fats. Trans fats are everything that is in fast food, for example, biscuits, it's hardened vegetable oils. So we need to avoid those. Mm. And in terms of protein, it's really important, but research shows that eating more vegetable protein as opposed to animal protein seems to be good mm. for fertility. So overall, a healthy, balanced diet, which I think so many of us have forgotten because it does take time to prepare things from scratch in their, with ingredients in their natural form. And in terms of exercise, it has to do with the level and the intensity of exercise. So if we do too much exercise, it can actually be bad for fertility. So around 30 to 60 minutes a day is okay of moderate exercise, but doing too much high intensity boot camp training sort of thing mm. is bad for fertility and mainly because it disrupts ovulation. Another question I got quite a bit was asking about are irregular or light periods a sign of infertility? Um, and also in the topic of periods, also a lot of questions about PCOS and infertility, which is, I think, a big concern for many women. Have you got any thoughts you could share with us on that? Yeah, I, I think we need to make a distinction between irregular periods that happen when in our teenage years, when periods are just starting. So it's normal that they are irregular at that time. And it's normal that they are irregular close to menopause. Mm. However, they shouldn't, outside those, those ages, they shouldn't really be irregular or painful. So it gives you an indication of what is happening in your body. Mm. And I think a lot of women have, have been told that painful periods are normal or that irregular periods are normal. Mm. So we're talking about periods that not all of one, not all women have 28 day periods, only a small percentage of women have 28 day periods, mm -hmm. but anything from 21 to 35 days can be normal. Mm -hmm. So if it lasts less than that or more than that, then it's something that needs to be looked into. Yeah, and I would second that. I think it was interesting to me that I was getting this question about people conflating irregular light periods to infertility. The concern with having irregular periods, like Andrea said, if it's less mm. than 21 days, so it's coming more frequently, or it's more than 35 days, so you have longer cycles, you should definitely be seeing your doctor about it because there's some tests that they can do, starting with blood tests and doing you know check your hormone balances and also um, ultrasounds to check you know check the womb's health and in terms of infertility the first thing is you want to be managing any underlying issues so that's where the GP can help you so that's very important. PCOS I think this is something that definitely when people hear the diagnosis of PCOS there's this association with infertility and it's often the first thing that people think about. I wonder if there's anything you can tell us about PCOS and infertility. So PCOS is really common. Uh, research shows it can happen anything between one in five to one in 10 women. Mm. And some of the signs would be irregular periods, exactly what we were talking about. Mm. But people also need to have 
they need to have at least two of the other symptoms. They need to have increased androgens, so increased male hormones, and difficulty conceiving can, can be one of the signs as well. Mm. And when the scan is done in the ovaries, mm. they can see large follicles mm. uh, containing the eggs, and those follicles may contain eggs that don't mature fully. Mm. So it can make it really hard for women getting pregnant. But it is a metabolic disease, Mm. So there is usually insulin resistance in women with PCOS, so they can also experience weight gain, and it can be really hard to manage. Often doctors just say, well, just go home and lose some weight, and, but it's not that easy. Mm. So losing weight can indeed help manage some of the symptoms, but sometimes they need some medication mm. to help manage the testosterone levels and to help induce ovulation as well. Yeah, and I think it's it's important to be aware of, you know, the potential impacts of PCOS or PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, whichever you call it, um, and liaising early with your doctor. If you are planning, you know, to get pregnant, if you are thinking about conceiving, mm -hmm. to have a conversation with your doctor. And I think it's also important to stress that, like you said, many doctors may not be understanding, well, not many, but, you know, some may not be understanding or sympathetic of um women's needs around uh pcos and if that's the case you can request another doctor and mm -hmm. try and find someone with whom you have a, you know a trusting relationship someone who you feel does understand your concerns and address your concerns you know whilst you start that journey of trying to conceive and the best thing to do is to start if that's something you're wanting to do just in relation with a doctor who's sort of guiding you through that journey so that you can do the best to make sure your preconception health is the best it can be right mm -hmm. so we've had a listener write in asking do you have any tips for managing anxiety after conceiving once having gone through an infertility journey particularly when you've got twins which is quite you know it's something that's possible when you go through fertility treatments yeah i i, I think everyone thinks that once you're pregnant all the emotional distress will go away but i think once you get pregnant then you have nine months of, of anxiety just thinking is this really happening or am i going to have a miscarriage or is something going to go wrong and i think it can be make it really hard for you to enjoy the pregnancy. And I think if you are faced with other people who maybe don't know your story of infertility or maybe know it, but they haven't been there themselves, they can make certain comments that can be really triggering for you. So I think meeting other women who have also gotten pregnant after infertility, there are certain podcasts available as well. It can be very, very powerful to, to manage that anxiety. And I would say if you need to have scans more frequently to have that reassurance, just have them more frequently. So it's all about doing the things that reassure you, medically speaking, and then of course, meeting with others who have been there and understand where you are coming from. Yeah, that's great. Finding support networks and keeping your medical professionals in the loop so they can help yeah. you as much as they can as well. I think we can squeeze in the last one, so we'll try. Yes. This is a question that I think is really, really important. So we've had a listener write in saying how they're worried about how infertility issues might impact their relationship. So if you can share your wisdom on, on how someone can manage potential 
relationship issues yeah. I think would be very helpful yeah I, I think this is usually a project that starts together and when you're in a relationship it starts as a couple wanting to grow their family expand their love but when it goes on for a while usually people might feel that the fun part of trying to get pregnant naturally mm. ends up being more I have to have sex at this certain time of the month to, to try and get pregnant and that can make things a bit weird and also when you start considering that you want treatment it can be really hard because both people may have different views about what treatment to try how long to try it for and you may have different views on how to cope with the losses that come along the way mm-hmm. and having to make decisions together so i understand it is completely normal to have relationship issues however it's reassuring to know that most couples do come out of it stronger so even though you're going through some problems there is a light at the end of the tunnel and this challenge has the opportunity to bring you closer together i would say go back to doing things that you used to do before you had this problem so things that you used to do as a couple that are not related to fertility going to the cinema going for a walk not letting this conversation take all your day that you're together because it can very easily you get to work you come from work and all you do is talk about it or try to conceive so you need to purposefully enjoy activities together that are not related to fertility you can schedule time to talk about it 20 30 minutes and you talk about a certain topic you're not going to resolve all the issues but you're going to resolve some of them and then you go on to enjoy your dinner or the rest of your evening so being protective of the relationship because at the end of the day this relationship is why everything started to begin with and whether you have a baby or not hopefully the couple will still be there at the end of the day as well so i think being protective of each other and respective of your the other person's views the other person's feelings and being mindful that when we're talking about a heterosexual relationship women tend to talk a lot and want to analyze things and talk about their feelings and men tend to communicate differently they tend to be more introspective and not want to analyze but that doesn't mean that they are necessarily less committed to it so a lot of understanding patience compromise yeah I think that's really, really helpful. So it's being protective of your relationship. It's com- open communication lines, mm-hmm. and I think I think I like the idea of like scheduling the serious yes. conversation. So actually, it's got a time limit, and you know when it's yeah. happening. So you say, right, we're going to talk about it at this time on this day, and then we have an hour, twenty minutes, where we talk about it, and then it's done, and then we can come back to it in a couple of days. I think that's a really yeah. nice way to approach it. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's been so wonderful speaking to you. Thank you, you Super. Where can people find you and your work? And can you please tell us a little bit about your fertility work as well before we end the episode? So they can find me online on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or on Andrea Trigo RN. 
and they can find me on my website, andreatrigo.com. And you also have an exciting new app coming out for this fertility platform that you have. So I'd love if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I feel that my mission in life is to make fertility support, education and care available worldwide, accessible to everyone, because we're very lucky here in the UK that we have access to doctors, nurses, psychologists, but in a lot of parts of the world, people don't have access to those professionals. So I created a platform that makes that support and knowledge available to everyone. So the app is coming in November, 2020. But before that, we've already been through two years of research on the product. We've had several people using it and to try and make it the best we could. So it's very exciting what is coming out. And just the thought that a lot of people will benefit from knowledge written in simple terms that they can understand, that they can access mm. support groups, that they can access the professionals anywhere in the world from their fingertips without having to pay a lot of money. It's, it's really, really fulfilling to me. And it, it sort of brings meaning to my own journey that we were talking in the beginning of today. What's the name of the app so people can keep their eyes peeled for November 2020? Enhanced Fertility Programme. Enhanced fertility program, you guys. So yes. that's what you need to look out for. Don't sleep on it because it sounds amazing. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Reproductive rights are human rights. Women need to be in control of their reproductive lives. But the reality is that women's reproductive choices are often politicised and there's so much to be said on this topic. Today I'm going to focus on just one little piece of this pie, forced sterilisation. Like, unless you've been under a rock, you've probably heard of the ice scandal that caused international uproar last month. Women's choices being railroaded and their bodies manipulated to serve an agenda isn't anything new, unfortunately. Let's take a look at the ice story in a bit more detail. Along the way, we'll learn about the history of forced sterilisation and find out what eugenics and neo-Malthusianism has got to do with it all. We are seriously going in, so take a seat, y'all. ICE stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. It's an American government agency that's aim is immigration enforcement, preventing terrorism and combating the illegal movement of people and goods. On September 14th, 2020, a complaint was filed on the behalf of detainees at the Irwin County Detention Centre. In the complaint, Dawn Wooten, a nurse who worked at the detention centre until July 2020, raised her concerns surrounding medical negligence and claimed that there are a high rate of immigrant women undergoing sterilisation. Anonymous testimonies from women, detailed experiences of female patients being forced into unknown operations and left guessing as to what had happened from the scars. The only thing they told me was, you're going to go to sleep and when you wake up we will have finished. That's from a 39-year-old female inmate. Dawn Wooten, the nurse turned whistleblower, estimated 20 women had hysterectomies over six years. All the allegations are against one doctor, with two women stating they were given hysterectomies that they aren't sure they needed. ICE responded to the mounting pressure by revealing that 
Two women detained at the centre had been referred for hysterectomy since 2018. They didn't clarify whether the referral was acted on and information on other sterilisation procedures wasn't reported. Dr Ada Rivera, medical director of the ICE Health Service Corps, said in a statement that the accusation will be fully investigated. However, ICE disputes the implication that detainees are used for experimental medical procedures. He also emphasised the role of healthcare professionals in the decision-making process, saying medical care decisions are made by medical personnel and not by law enforcement. Detainees are afforded informed consent and a medical procedure would never be performed against a detainee's will. Now, we know that those in detention are vulnerable, disempowered and disadvantaged. Their ability to consent is really complicated by language barriers, coercion, lack of understanding about their own rights and their mental states. When someone can't consent to a procedure because they lack the capacity to, it usually falls to the medical professional to decide in the patient's best interests. But as history shows us, doctors have been the perpetrators of forced sterilisation, fully supported by the law and guided by policy. In the late 19th century to early 20th century, many countries developed sterilisation programmes. These programmes were born from concepts of social engineering based in bad science and bad political and social theory. Let's start with the bad science, eugenics. Eugenics is the practice of controlled selective breeding of human populations with a view to improve the qualities of the species. Galton, the cousin of Charles Darwin, kickstarted the movement in 1883 and coined the term. Now, I call it bad science and I don't, I'm like, I'm not even talking about the ethics here. I mean that conditions, behaviours were incorrectly thought to be inherited. The environmental contributions to mental illness, criminality and poverty were ignored. Instead, eugenicists, I really struggle to say that word, hoped to wipe out these undesirable traits, conditions, circumstances by controlling who could and couldn't reproduce. Often those that fit the criteria for undesirability were from minority groups, those with disabilities, and the LGBTQIA community. And as wild as this might sound to you now, this idea was seriously championed by scientists and thought leaders of the time. Now, the bad political and social theory comes from the idea proposed by Malthus, that population size grows faster than food supply, which inevitably results in food shortages and poverty. The solutions are positive checks, which are natural or man-made disasters, such as war, famine, earthquakes, or preventative checks, which were measures we would put in place, such as family planning, celibacy, etc. If you've seen Infinity War, Thanos' game plan is Malthusian, although he took a positive check approach rather than a preventative check approach. This theory has been debunked many a time. Population growth is not the cause of poverty, but that's a whole other conversation. Whilst eugenics started in the UK, it really took hold in the US. By the 1940s, 30 of the then 48 states had passed eugenical sterilisation laws. By 1924, 3,000 people had been involuntarily sterilised. In 1927, Carrie Buck challenged the state's decision to sterilise her. She was selected by her doctor for sterilisation for being below average and not normal. Her mother was in an asylum and she had a child out of wedlock. Her case was overruled by the all-male Supreme Court justices who cited the best interests of the state 
and reaffirmed the need for sterilisation laws to prevent the country from, quote, being swamped with incompetence. Three generations of imbeciles are enough, end quote. Isn't that just, just, oh my gosh. This case really set the tone. And by the 1940s, 64,000 people were forcibly sterilised. It wasn't until eugenics was tarred by the Nazis that it fell from favour. But even still, coercive practices around sterilisation continued. Between 1970 and 1976, Native American women were pressured into sterilisations by threats to withdraw healthcare access or take their children into custody. And a 2013 report exposed that almost 39 out of 144 sterilisation procedures performed on women in prison between 2005 and 2013 were done without lawful consent. Other coercive and still forced sterilisation practices have happened and continue to happen all around the world. From the accusations about ICE to America's history of forced sterilisation to the concept of eugenics, the theme that emerges is one of the imbalances of power, justice and agency. There are the powerful who make decisions and exercise agency, and there are the powerless who have their agency manipulated and experience the consequences of others' decisions. And then also there are the value judgments that are made. Who is good? Who is bad? Who is beneficial to our society? Who is harmful? We're still waiting to hear more about the ICE scandal and find out what's actually been happening. But the bottom line is, we need to be in the driver's seats of our lives and our health. So I'm going to end this one as I started. Reproductive rights are human rights and women need to be in control of their reproductive lives. What's your take on population control and eugenics? That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you're coming through iTunes, please leave us a like and a review. Otherwise, give us a follow on your pod players to stay tuned on latest releases. And I will see you next week.